Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're about to have a conversation with Michael Twitty. Mike Twitty, of course, culinary historian of African and African-American foodways and blogger at Afroculinaria, among many other things he does in the world of food and thinking and life. And Michael Twitty, welcome. Good to have you back. Well, I'm so glad to be back, Mark. So let's talk a bit about what you were talking with Mark Ernie, one of our producers, about earlier in the week, just your, your, your initial reflections on the uprisings that took place around Freddie Gray's death and, and the idea of food and food scarcity in deserts, how yeah. they're connected for you. Well, you know, the first thing I thought about was the Save-A-Lot. The Save-A-Lot was getting looted, and I'm like, what for? What, you know, I've been to that save a lot several times. (laughs) Not the greatest, you know, not the greatest spot in the world. You know, no disrespect to save a lot, but my God, um, you know, you only have so much produce. The rest of the food is processed. Um, The only cheese I ever saw in the place was called government issued cheese product. (laughs) I mean, you you look at you think about that and say, what what are you stealing? Potato chips, and maybe that's the problem. You know, um, I'm not talking about you know having a gourmet kind of like war here, but I mean, if you think about the juxtaposition of that versus, you know, the Whole Foods in the area supplying food to the law enforcement, what that that's a dramatic picture right there. Just those two images, people scrambling over what little they have versus the most expensive grocery chain saying there's law enforcement here. Thanks for doing a good job. It, it, it really is bizarre. It, it, is, it is an interesting juxtaposition. I, I think that, you know, I mean, what, what things symbolize, the kind of wealth of eating healthy and supporting those who are being charged with controlling people who are angry about being communities that don't eat healthy and they're looting out whatever food it had that existed in that community. Right. And you don't have any, and, it's, and this is an age-old problem. Here's, here's my issue. Um, you know, you introduced me as a food historian, colonial historian. Right. Uh, back, in the, back in the colonial antebellum period and federal periods of Baltimore, black people controlled the food market. Okay. In Baltimore. What does that mean? I mean what, what, describe what that means. They basically had an economic monopoly over it. They were the, they were the poultry producers. They raised the chickens on the, on the farms, the plantations surrounding Baltimore and other parts of Maryland. They grew truck patches. They grew gardens where they're providing the produce. Uh, they were only, there were certain kinds of produce that were unique to the black community. Only the black community produced. We've talked about the fish pepper. We've talked about the okra. We've talked about that before, stuff on the show before. And when the Haitians come in, Haitian refugees come in, they actually marry into the African-American community in Baltimore, and they have a monopoly for 20 years over that market until the laws are changed to disenfranchise black participation in the selling of food, fish, shellfish from the bay, etc. So... Think about this. Two, you know, two hundred some years ago, black people ran the show when it came to food in the city of Baltimore. But, I mean, this and what... even, you know, I mean, what what does that say? And, and they, they probably ate much better than the average black Baltimorean does today. I mean, that, 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 that's reflect on that a minute. What you're just saying. I mean, first of all, because some people will posit all the time that that black folks never controlled anything and never controlled food in particular in this slave society. But you're, you're setting up a different historical um, world uh, for us to wrestle with. The fact that yeah. that free black people and married Haitians who fled and came here really ran the food market and selling system in the city. Mm-hmm. And did so, and, and, when they, and when people were enslaved in the city, they demanded to have... A, a garden patch. They demand to have an area for their chickens. They were selling this stuff because it was one of the largest cities in America. And at one point, Baltimore had the largest food market in America. So you're thinking about this 
and going, wow, so what, what, what's the change? What's the factor? What's going on here? But also considering the fact that that's alongside Baltimore being this, um, for all intents and purposes, a geographic jail for black people. The minute you stepped outside the city of Baltimore, you know, you were no longer, um, uh, you're, you're no longer safe. You're no longer free. So, you could be captured any second. And so there's this idea that Baltimore has been both this haven for black people and also kind of like a, kind of like a prison as well. Mm-hmm. But even in that, we made our own way. So if you take that to the 21st century, what do you do with that information? What do you, what do, you do with that history about in terms of analysis of where we are now and where we could take ourselves? Well, you know, um, I think Denzel and other people across the urban landscape have proven that community gardens, that community farm projects, urban farming, improve the way people look at their neighborhoods, interact with their communities, interact with each other, interact with their food. There's all that space there. Detroit's doing it. Detroit is taking, you know, Detroit is taking back vacant land and vacant spaces and turning them into food spaces and foodscapes. Baltimore has to do the same thing. Black Baltimore specifically has to do the same thing. It's an issue of power. It's an issue of ownership. And it's also an issue of, you know, channeling energies into certain into certain projects. I mean, we're talking about, you know, our, our esteemed governor, you know, doesn't want money for schools, but he wants money for a new prison. Well, that prison is being planned on the gamble that all those young people are the next crop for the, for the new Jim Crow. So I, I say use food, and use food empowerment to, to wage the ultimate war. The ultimate war is not between black and white. The ultimate war here is between those that want to imprison people of color and keep the cycle going and those who want to break the cycle permanently and destroy the present industrial complex. And, you, you, you know, what I've said before about gardening and food is this. When you give our children access to this, you're teaching them science, you're informing their literacy, teaching them math, you're teaching them about nutrition, teaching them about their heritage, their history, you're connecting them with the past generations, you're connecting with each other, connecting with their community, with the land. If you don't have that, if you don't feel that, then burning down a building is nothing to you. So part of it is, 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 this is a number of levels, but before we have to leave each other, I mean, one of the levels is to talk about how you take <clears throat> that knowledge, that energy, and transform it. If you, if you take it from the community side out, uh, bottom up rather than top down, about the ability to control your community and control the food within it um, could, could, is a possibility. Absolutely. And one of the most important things is the ability to market. That's what made the community in the antebellum period so strong. They marketed their food. Mm-hmm. They were, this was an entrepreneurial endeavor. And when food is hot now, people in this area and other areas of the East Coast, they want to they look at what does my urban, greater urban area have to offer in terms of locality. This is a ripe opportunity for... Um, these young people to, you know, market things that are valuable and create a viable um, economic path for themselves. This is not a bootstrap philosophy. This is just simply, you know, this is our territory. This is our lane. This has always been our lane. And we need to get back in it. And we take over it. Because there's nothing, there's, there's nothing um, wrong about putting your fingers in the dirt. That's one of the things that we have to do, Marcus. We have to tell people. No, you're not going backwards by reconnecting with the earth. You're not going backwards by putting your fingers in the dirt. You're not being a slave. You're going forward. You're preserving um, our planet. You're preserving our people. And you're preserving our destiny. And you're destroying those prisons. And that's the ultimate message we have to give. And and so and that's a, cr- a critical message you're giving here because you're talking about not just – Farming for subsistence, farming to feed a community, to farming for feeding, farming for feeding a community, but also 
The idea that you can build a system in black communities that can sell food to everybody, to own a market, right? Right, right. right. So you know something? I'm going to tell you something amazing. I was in Atlanta um, in 2012 during the first leg of my project, and I saw something that made me feel so proud and stunned me. I had never seen a dollar, a dollar travel in the black community and stay there. So I went to a market, a small community farmer's market in southwest Atlanta, and there was a gentleman there from Montezuma, Georgia, who brought up his produce. He sold the produce to a lovely sister there who was a vegan caterer. The very next day, she transformed their produce into food at a fundraiser benefit for the Hopshaw, the organization that does urban farming and gardening with kids and takes them to Africa and trains them and does all sorts of wonderful things. And here it was. I saw the dollar travel from, the resources travel from the farmer to the caterer to me buy her food, and part of that money goes back to supporting the community. And I thought, this is a miracle. This is what I've always wanted to see. Hmm. And it, so it was, it was like stunning. I thought to myself, I've never seen this before. I've never seen this before. And it was all centered around food. And something that you know that you believe that can be replicated on a much larger scale. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's no reason it can't. There's no reason why um, we, can't, we can't do it. Um, we, we simply have to put in the work. And the work has to be absolutely communal. And has to reach, it has to go to every single level. You know, whatever easements we can create so that people can do this, it'll have, you know, bureaucratic barriers to transforming the landscape around them. We need, to, we need to work on that first. And then after that, think about, okay, so what's in the soil? Is this soil clean? Is it not? If it's not clean, we got to build above it. But we got to do something. We can't have just weeds and rocks and rubble. <laughs> uh, we can't do that anymore. We, you know, um, do we, you know, <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen the outskirts of, of the West Bank and Gaza. Baltimore shouldn't have to be like that. We use the term uprising. It's interesting how that term applies. The term applies there and it applies here. Well, people uprise when they don't have the basic needs met. You and I are both Jews. There's a, there's a, there's an old there's an old saying, where there's no bread, there's no Torah. Right. Mm. We both know what that means. Where there's no basic subsistence, and basic needs are not being met, all the rest of it is for naught. Exactly. Michael Twitter, you always bring these gems of beautiful wisdom to us, and I think it's something we need to wrestle with, the idea of having these cooperatives and building a new society, and it can come from the bottom up. And I deeply appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule and all the stuff you're working on to be with us here today uh, and, and doing this. Michael Twitty is culinary historian of African African American Foodways, blogger at Afroculinaria, and uh, looking forward to his book that will be coming to us sometime in the near future. Michael Twitty, brother, thank you so much for your thoughts thank and wisdom. You so much. Thank you. We're about to talk to three young farmers, and we've been talking about the uprising that occurred around the death of Freddie Gray and how food scarcity and the issues of food in communities affect people's lives, how that's part of the healing process and the feeding process and more, and where that might take us. And so we're joined here by Walker Marsh, founder and owner of The Flower Factory. He's back in the studio again. Good to have you here, Walker. It's always a pleasure. Sasha Jones is with us, food justice consultant for the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, and she manages the Afia Teaching Garden in Park Heights. Thank you. Good to have you back. And also back with us is Blaine Snipstall, who is a returning generation farmer on the eastern shore at his farm, Black Dirt Farm. And Blaine, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me again, Mark. So let me me just jump right into it. When Michael Twitty originally throw this out to us, this idea that, that you know, that the idea of food deserts and food scarcity plays an effect, affects people's minds and, and how they think and the behavior and their thoughts and their souls and how that might have fed into what happened in the community after we learned of Frederick Gray's death. I'm curious just how you all would analyze and feel about that. Mm-hmm. Sasha, why don't we start with you? Do you well, mind? No. Um, I think... It's interesting, especially where I am in Park Heights, because typically the neighborhood 
at its prime was not an African-American neighborhood. Um, and so when I talk to elders um, in my community or who have lived there in the past, they speak of a time where you could walk down the street and your neighbors had fruit trees and, you know, this neighbor over here had a garden and, you know, there was a, a butcher shop and a flower shop and, you know, all these things within the community um, that completely went against what it looks like now where it's just a picture of scarcity and, and kind of blight. But then at the same time, looking at the like overall history of African African American neighborhoods, um, you know, the hist- the historic ones. So we can point to, you know, our Cherry Hills, we can point to our Sandtown Winchesters, we can point to those neighborhoods. And I think that the idea of um food scarcity or food injustice injustices is, is not new. Um and it's something that has existed uh, you know, for decades. And uh, we were actually just having this conversation in the office of how, you know, it's it's a branding thing, thing these days where, like, it's being branded food deserts and food justice is a buzzword and it's, it's cool to talk about it now, mm-hmm. but that these issues have always existed. But what has not always is, existed is this, um, this feeling of disorganized communities, of, you know, disjointed... Um, I would say ancestral networks. So like, you know, not talking to your elders, not mm-hmm. having that um, those networks in place and not um, having your own sovereignty or your own solidarity either within your community or not um, having it within your own family. And so um, what I'm so how I started is saying that it's it's complex is that Park Heights in its prime, you know, when it was really a food oasis, you can walk by and see food everywhere. You can see you know, place to buy it or grow it or whatever, um, that's a picture of where we would like to go, um, you know, in all of the neighborhoods in Baltimore and understanding that this issue is not new, but the biggest part of it is our understanding that the government won't change it and, you know, city policy will never do enough to actually permeate to the neighborhood level and it's not really supposed to. It's supposed to give you the opportunity to do it, Um and then you at the community level take ownership of that and you make use of whatever program or policy is, is on the on the board right now. Um, and so, you know, at our garden, at FIA Community Teaching Garden, that's where, the, that's where our conversation is. So bringing back um, food sovereignty, bringing back the knowledge, using the knowledge of the elders and the curiosity of the youth and the get-it-doneness of the middle-aged, you know, all together, <laughs> you know, to really create a system where – we do have control of our over our food um, to whatever extent we can, whether we're growing it ourselves, um, you know, through our garden, our CSA, which is called the Growing Food Together CSA, or, you know, whether you're buying it locally, you know, from a farmer's market, which we have the Park Heights Community Farmer's Market, um, you know, or you're buying it from a farmer that's not at the market, so connecting you to farmers like Walker, you know, who's selling flowers, or like Blaine, you know, on the Eastern Shore right, right. that, you know, sells all this stuff, so understanding the the network that we already have and tapping back into it ourselves. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. <laughs> why, why don't you pick up on that, Blaine? Or on your own way of approaching that? Um, right. Well, I first, I just want to give thanks again uh, for having this opportunity to share with you. Um, and I also want to mention I'm not from Baltimore. In fact, I've actually never, I lived inside the city very briefly um, last year, but I've always been camped um, on the outside of the periphery, the rural areas surrounding Baltimore and mm-hmm. the area. So just to give that clarification, but, you know, Sasha alluded to some really poignant points, and I think one thing to help uh, give us a, a greater understanding about the political context of these, not just of these uprisings, but the the dynamics of the food system, right, is that um, historically, as people of color, as as of black people, you know, we we built, we were used to build a food system that was never designed for us. So today, the repercussions or the evolution of this food system that came from the South, you know, that manifested now throughout cities, um, is doing exactly what it has historically been designed to do, which is first and foremost, to generate profit mm-hmm. and not to feed people, but also to create what are called sort of um, insulary economic zones where if you're not on the inside, you're left out or you don't have it, you know. And so I think when we think about food sovereignty within that context, there's another recognition that Sasha alluded to, where we have to have these connections between the rural and urban areas. And amongst the young folks um, within the city and 
surrounding Baltimore City, we're actually quite connected. Um, we actually had a gathering out at our house on the Eastern Shore several weeks ago, I guess several months ago now. Um, but to, you know, to form these personal relationships that inform political and professional relationships. And so that's so fundamental because the research has said, and even, you know, we've seen examples in other parts of the country that urban agriculture cannot feed cities. It's just not, first of all, the, you know, the land that, that would be required within a city to do that is very high. Um, and most cities don't have that type of land base, although Baltimore is unique, much like Detroit and some of the northern um, post-industrial cities. Um, and so that requires or necessitates a relationship with the rural area. And not just in a production relationship in terms of, i.e., black dirt farm giving sweet potatoes or tomatoes to Sasha or, you know, whatever it may be to Walker and whoever else, of which we do, but also the training to receive the knowledge and the technical aspects to how to produce food in an ecological way that's in harmony with the planet. Mm -hmm. Because the food system as it stands now always has contradictions, right? And those contradictions are always hidden by two main things the political context of the food system and petroleum. And so once both of those become unstable, then the contradictions of the food system, which are highly unequal distribution of power and wealth and control, unequal distribution of distribution of food, unequal distribution of distribution of poor foods in particular neighborhoods, all of these things get unraveled once the political and the petroleum or energy context, you know, hit a crisis, which they're hitting now. And so that gives us an opportunity, much like this conversation, to begin to articulate, well, how do we begin to actually feed ourselves, not just in physical terms, in terms of food or production, but also in terms of networks or, you know, building our own internal solidarity economies and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And these are very pragmatic things that we've seen take place in other parts of the world, in Cuba and Zimbabwe and um, Mozambique and Brazil, you know, we have these examples of when these crises have hit and how people have, ad have addressed it. And the last thing I'll say, again, that Sasha alluded to as well, is that it cannot be done without the state, but the state or the municipality or the city cannot do it. There has to be an organization of the peoples. And so one thing that we have historically struggled with, um, we being all people, but, but particularly black people or people of color, is maintaining, you know, autonomous organizations that actually put forth the work. And not in the saying that we are not able to put forth the work, but oftentimes when we begin to put forth the work, we are under threat because our work fundamentally confronts a social system and political and economic system that's designed to throw our to thwart our efforts in terms of building our own our power. And in us building power, we build power for everybody and with everybody. I mean that's the nature of it. So these types of considerations are fundamental, and food allows us to begin to construct uh, a framework and a model of development in which the people are at the center and the way we want to move forward is collectively defined. I was going to say about that, Walker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, oh, man, following Sasha and Blaine, me, they, to me, these guys, like, really, uh, they help me out so much. I really look up to them both a lot and just, like, intern in this world of uh, agriculture, but... Uh, I totally agree with both of them. I mean, it it is so you know this food sovereignty, food justice thing is is completely to me. It's it's the black experience of America. I mean, this is stuff that's been going on since forever, since we've been in this country. And uh, for me, you know, because um, I was out there at the protests, just like you know, probably you know, Sasha and them, they've been out there doing that the whole Freddie Gray situation, and just to to know that area because you know i'm from baltimore I, I grew up mostly in the county but you know it's to know that area and to know that there's there really isn't much over there it's not like a lot of opportunities are on that side of town and you know that really kind of led to a lot of those situations where police are harassing people because i actually talked to the guy that they called him um he knew freddie gray personally and he was an older gentleman. I think they called him Uncle something. I can't remember what his name is. Mm -hmm. But he was saying that, you know, he's known Freddie, and the police had been harassing him for a while. And, you know, it wasn't his first interaction with the police. So, you know, the the lack of opportunities in that neighborhood could have played, you know, well, did play a, a big role in that. But um, as far as food sovereignty and food justice goes, uh, you know, I think like how Blaine said, you know, we need to do a lot more 
training and skills development because that's that's what I'm really going for after and uh, with my thing with the Flower Factory because I think that if we were to simply get a lot of these guys out here and train them and, and do more skills development because a lot of people, you know, there was a big push for individuals to go to college and get these degrees and, you know, all these other things. And, you know, it we've been seeing that, you know, it hasn't paid off because – and when it comes to food, you know, and this food access and food inequalities issue, it's not just about actually going out there and getting the food. It's also about actually being able to afford that food, like financially afford it. And a lot of these folks out here cannot even afford the food. And I think that if we had more skills to just train ourselves to even just grow the food so that we could grow it ourselves or like myself start a business that is not selling food, but I'm selling flowers, but I'm still using those same skills that I learned in the, uh, you know, doing urban farming. And, you know, if we would have more models of that, maybe more people could go after that, you know, aspect of it. I'm talking with Sasha Jones, Walker Marsh, and Blaine Stepstall. We're going to take a very brief break. On the way there, it's Gravy from a Mashed Potatoes by D.D. Sharp, recorded on this day in 1962. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. You're listening to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites here on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And that's Maybelline by Chuck Berry, recorded on this day in 1955. And I'm speaking with three young farmers about the Baltimore uprising and how it relates to issues of food sovereignty in Baltimore and beyond. I'm joined by Sasha Jones, food justice consultant for the Park Heights Community Health Alliance and manager of the Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights, Walker Marsh, founder and owner of the Flower Factory, and Blaine Snipstall, returning generation farmer on the eastern shore at Black Dirt Farm. There's, there's a lot of questions I have here. I mean, I'm, I'm about where this might take us. I'm thinking about things that all of you have said, and Sasha started this conversation off talking about Government won't change. You'd have to take ownership. And Blaine followed up with that idea as well. And and so, I, where where do we take that? I mean, I, by that I mean, let me take a step backwards. Now, I heard what you said earlier, Sasha, but I, I can recall growing up in Baltimore, and there wasn't a food scarcity in deserts in the Black world like there was, like there is now. There were grocery stores. People had gardens in the back of the yards. People had still had relationships to the country, whether the country was in the Eastern Shore, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. People had relationships to the country and to going back home. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that that was all there, yeah. and 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 that is gone. In many ways, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the black farmers in the South losing their land also meant that people going back home. That that has shifted in a way. Like, I, I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but like in your generation, I mean, younger generations, they weren't sent south in the summer, like people in, in my generation mm-hmm. and my friends were sent back to visit yeah. with, their, with their grandmas and aunts and aunties and uncles to live for the summer and then come back. You know, so that that relationship is gone. So I'm curious, your thoughts on on how you build on what you're talking about here, what it means to take ownership. Can mm-hmm. your from your perspectives can can communities take control of their food? Can they maybe can they feed themselves or partially feed themselves? How does that dynamic change the nature of a community? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, mm-hmm. if that was actually a part of what was happening, I mean, where do you see it going beyond the places you are now? Um, well, exactly what you're saying. So we know what's missing. So we start by, you know, real rebuilding those small pieces little by little. And what I mean by that is you're absolutely right. Even in my little short life, I've seen, <laughs> you know, I have seen the, the difference between, you know, having the nosy neighbor or the, the, the neighborhood auntie or neighborhood mm-hmm. mama, you know, like that's that's Miss So-and-so and you call her auntie or grandma or ma, mama, whoever, mm-hmm. you know, seeing how, you know, the culture has kind of shifted in that. And I don't really want to speak to, you know, the the political reasons for why that exists. But what I can say is that we can start by, I mean, introduce yourself to your neighbor. Like it's as simple as that sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, um, 
And I meet, I ride through my neighborhood in Park Heights all the time and see people with gardens. Get out. When you see someone with a garden, get out and say, oh, hey, what are you doing with those collars, you know? Um, or how did you get your hydrangeas to look so nice? So that type of thing. But then also, um, you know, on a wholesale level, like, you know, the organization I work for, um, the garden that we have is designed, you know, to is to bring people together, to facilitate those connections. So, like I said, connecting the elders, you know, the knowledge and wise elders to the, the curious youth, you know, and having the middle-aged of, of all shapes, sizes, and, you know, colors um, kind of bridge that gap in between um, and using all of those connections to push us forward because we're not all going to be able to grow the food. You know, um, we don't all need to grow the food. You know, there's there's a role in, um, for everyone um, to bring vibrancy back to the communities. But one, you know, how do we do that is just participate in the systems that are already there. Join your neighborhood association and actually go to the meetings and volunteer. You know, if you shop at your, I was at the Food Justice Committee meeting yesterday, um, and we were talking about um, being intentional about shopping at our neighborhood grocery stores. Shop there. If, the, if it's bad, complain. Like, use your, right. you know, use your personal sovereignty to push, push forward change. But do you think that, do, do people here think that, that, Neighborhoods can be designed where farming and people growing their own food and distributing their own, distributing their own food can actually become an integral part of the community. Can, if it doesn't fit, feed everybody, but can it, can it play a, a larger role than it's playing now? You know, I mean, what you're trying to do in Park Heights are the CSAs that are for working class and poor working class people that nobody else is really trying to do. That's a mm-hmm. very different thing. Mm-hmm. Do, we think, do we think that's actually, is this just a phenomenon of, of 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 of, of uh, Sasha Blaine and Walker, <laughs> or, or you know what I'm saying, or or nah. is something that could really take hold, and how would that happen to become the heartbeat of a community if that could, if that's possible? I mean, I think it's definitely possible. I think it's already happening right now. It's just it just takes time, you know. It takes for us to continue to push it and continue to to be out there doing this work and promoting it. Um, you know, I, I just think we just need to continue doing what we're doing and continue to get funding from you know the city and, and state level. And um and just have people people just need to continue to care about this and to keep and continue to we have to continue to educate people. I really feel like it comes back to ed- education and we just continue to do what we're doing because we're already doing great things and it's it's already moving that way. I mean I I'm just a new in- addition to this whole movement. I started about two three years ago. And you know, there I've seen I'm been seeing kids getting more into it mm-hmm. and more adults getting into it. So it's 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 happening already. It just it just takes time. Right. Know? And yeah. I think communities are already organized around food. Like yeah. communities are or if they have not if they are not currently, they have been in the past or should be, you mm-hmm. know, and that's not anything new when you look at city states and yeah. like our, our our society is based off of Greek and Roman societies and they were designed Mm -hmm. you know this the city is designed with where you get your food from that's not that's definitely not a new concept um but i think as the the community is already designed that way you know there's already a food network in every community whether it's disjointed whether it's nutrient poor you know whatever it's already there and so you know my interest is kind of working again working with the systems that are already there so kind of infiltrating however you you know however you you phrase it um but it's already designed that way, and it's up to us to just continue to add what we're doing, like Walker said, to continue doing what we're doing, and then taking the time to promote it. Because I think a lot of us get lost in the work and don't um, mm-hmm. spend enough time on communicating and bringing people into the fold. Um, so that's a that's an opportunity for someone else to get involved. If you have the gift of gab and you believe in this, you know, mm-hmm. believe in this work, then by all means, join up with with someone and start bringing folks in. So Blaine, I, 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 you travel you travel the country. You've traveled the country a lot, and you and you've gone to some of these meetings that have taken place, like the like the black farmers and urban growers and those different things. People are doing that kind of work, and I and I wonder what you think the practicality of that is, the pragmatic aspects of that are in terms of what it can what it can do, what can be built. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a process, and a lot of folks are, are searching and creating and searching and studying and observing what they're doing and how they can do it better and and connect with other folks and they can exchange information. And so, um, you know, the thing is, it's happening all over the country, and that's actually the most fascinating thing. And I, I tell folks, like, yeah, 
like five to seven years, it's about to be off the chain. Watch. Because mm -hmm. there are folks all over the country in rural and in urban areas, but predominantly in urban areas, who are the Sashas, the Denzels, the Walkers, the Aaliyahs, the Melissa Moores, all these folks. And they're everywhere. They're doing amazing things. So there are some barriers that that we're, that we're seeing and, um, that aren't just unique to what people are struggling against in Baltimore and aren't just unique to what people are struggling in New York and so on and so forth. And that tells us that there's this um, limit to what we can do individually within cities. And so there are folks who are exploring pragmatically what it would look like to form um, um, regional or national um, black um, organization of some sort. Now, the Black Urban Growers is, is really just a framework to organize conferences, um, mm -hmm. and it hasn't put the jump more beyond that. But to get more to the, the question that I think that you're you're really trying to tease out, um, you know, the struggle is the manifestations of the food movement, as you know, if, if you will. Um, is largely being fueled by a very robust nonprofit complex mm -hmm. that is receiving very large amounts of funding, but those amounts of funding pale in comparison to the funding that goes to the other side of the coin, you know, just to give us that context. And so what we're seeing now is that, okay, well, as people of color, as those in these affected communities, how do we gain direct access to resources to be able to do the work and not have a nonprofit be an intermediary because at the end of the day, uh -huh. the nonprofits and the grants are cool, but however, once this moment, this political moment shifts because it will shift and those resources will go somewhere else, I mean, that's the end, um, you know, we'll be the ones that are left behind. And so we have to be able to have the infrastructure in place to keep moving forward. And so, you know, the practicality of it fundamentally is how do we build the social infrastructure in terms of the leadership, the, the strengthening of community-based organizations, and physical infrastructure. How do we develop urban farms and rural farms, irrigation systems, distribution networks that can run off of limited petroleum inputs, mm -hmm. um, access carpenter and welders, you know, all these different things that Sasha and Walker mentioned that everybody has a role to play you know, we need to be very conscious about how we are bringing those things beyond word, but actually into action. So, you know, let's just be, I, I want to play with this just for a minute and, and go and, and, and take this. I've been doing a lot of reading lately and, and um, futurist kind of reading and especially Afrofuturist reading. I've been mm -hmm. spending a lot of time with that and thinking about how we can imagine what a place might be and how we build that in our minds and sometimes that that building becomes a reality, right? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, like what you were saying, Sasha, about almost this ownership and self-reliance. And, and, and if this world is actually built that inside of communities uh, that was controlled by communities and, and, and uh, controlling food and more inside of communities mm -hmm. and co-ops and more, what that relationship would mean for the larger structure that runs everything else on the outside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what, how will you envision that? I mean, what in, in your dreams... In your mm. dreams and fantasies, that to me is that that to me is that the heart and root of all practical futures are dreams and fantasies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so at, at, at the heart of that, what, what do you imagine could be? How do you imagine things could be? I mean, I imagine things could be fair. I know y'all fantasize man. about this. I know you do. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every day, man, every single day. I think. Uh, I mean, for me, I always go back to farming because I'm like, I'm in love with farming. Like, mm -hmm. I just love every single moment that I'm out there farming. And I'm like, you know, if we were to take the tools that we have now, like, you know, we got a lot of vacant lots. I'm always thinking about how can we produce more? How can we produce more? That's where I'm always going. Mm -hmm. It's just like producing more and able to make people have access, like physically access to fruits and vegetables and all these other things. So I'm always thinking about that and just like, putting up stuff in this lot or, you know, taking right. that there, but also having, like, stores that were, you know, uh, you know, used the, the produce that we were selling and right. making it so that people can purchase these things and just, you know, just making it more public instead of just having to carry out here selling, you know, chicken box, you know, maybe some 
I don't know, hot dog. I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Right. Just, you know, I don't know. It's <laughs> We just need to support each other. That's I, I really feel like that's a big thing. It's just, like, everybody supporting each other. Like, the people that come into the city for the farmer's markets don't just support the farmer's markets, but they also support other businesses in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. So... Mark, you made me think of my favorite author, of course, Mama Octavia. And um, I was just, I've been reading Octavia's Brood, all the stories that came. There's an incredible group of short stories yeah, in that book that yeah, I just yeah, love. Yeah, yeah, right? um, So what comes to mind for me, I hope it does not take a, po- a post-apocalyptic world <laughs> for this to happen, but definitely Parable of the Sower touched me when I read it the first time. And... Um, and it just shows the community, again, this is by necessity that there's violence and decay all around them, which doesn't really sound too far off. Um, and so they have transformed their gated community into a full-service, sovereign community. So they have their own fire department, they have uh-huh. their own doctor, their own <laughs> church, their own school. Um, and I think the thing that touched me the most was the acorn flower. I said they are they are using the acorns from the tree, you know, and making acorn flower bread, which is gluten-free. So, you know, that's, again, not too far off. Um, I'm sure there's some person somewhere trying to mill acorns right now. (laughs) Um, So that touched me in the sense that this community was self-sufficient and they used their collective intellectual power as well as uh, collective manpower to really create a community that worked for, you know, every strata of the community from the elders down to the babies. Now, I really do not want to live in a world where there are things burning around around my community all the time and I have to, like, fight zombie-like things, you know, to, to maintain <laughs> such a uh, uh, perceived oasis of a community. I but had to about zombies last night. <laughs> <laughs> See, exactly, because it makes me think, you know, so I would hope that doesn't have to happen. But especially in a place like Baltimore, you know, I, I was driving down um, the street just the other day, and I stumbled upon a lot, and it had all this land, and it had a few houses next to it. And so my mind immediately went to, just like Walker said, okay, we're going to put the potatoes over here, we're going to put an orchard over here, we're going to put the greens yeah. right here, and then we're going to develop these houses, and then I'm going to live in the first one, and then my, my hired help, they're going to live in this one. You know, so it's, you know, again, I don't really want all that chaos around me. And at the same time, we live in a perfect place to really start developing these micro communities, um, you know, because that's what Baltimore is already. It's a city of mm-hmm. micro communities mm-hmm. <laughs> and sub communities and all of these things. Um, and so using that to our advantage and just creating these small little plots of of what, you know, of picture of perfection of you know it being food sovereign but beyond that you know using food as an organizing point you know so collect um go full out cesar chavez and start a a credit union you know uh have a community office for you know water issues whatever that type of thing so so blaine take off for a minute right i'm gonna i'm gonna go i'm gonna go back to the acorn okay cool (laughs) go ahead do it do it do it uh Prior to, um, well, actually, not even prior to 1492, actually, as soon as, you know, maybe 70 years ago, the indigenous of of North America or Turtle Island were making acorn mash. Mm -hmm. They were already making that. And so (laughs) I have this teacher named uh, Dr. Awusu Bendeli, and he always says the only um, thing new in this world is the history you do not know. And... That is mm. couldn't be more true in this conversation because there is a world that has existed prior to 1492, and there's a world that exists today that I think we have to check in our periphery to bring to the center. Mm-hmm. And for that, you know, if we're envisioning the future, you know, a lot of it requires to look back and not to say we can go back, but you know what? Maybe we need to plant more species of acorns. So we can get to a point where we can, yet again, return to acorn flour, acorn mash, amongst the other things. They're also making paper um, and burning materials out of the acorn. So the potential to commune with the planet is so high, but our imaginations have to reach a point to be able to see it. And how Walker and um, Sasha are, are articulating about in the city, you know, that's, that's a perspective that is fundamental to live into the future to see in the decay, in the destruction, creativity and possibility, to see fire, the phoenix coming out. And so 
you know, for me, personally speaking, you know, coming from a rural context, first and foremost, people of color, we fundamentally need to control land. Fundamentally, 96% of land in this country is owned and controlled by whites. And we have to begin to understand how that has come to play and also begin to discuss how we can move back onto land. Not to say there needs to be an exodus from the urban areas, but to seed into people's minds that there are situations like the Denzels who will start in an urban area and something will happen and say, I want to go to a rural side. And we need to have mechanisms that can allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. And so pragmatically for this season, um, we've been trying to keep it a little under wraps, but I'll mention it now, but we're looking to have um, – uh, an agrarian training program on our farm to connect with some of the folks inside of Baltimore City. Ali has been working with folks in the city, and, and we're and we're working to develop this immersion program. And we're having folks from um, the Quilombo and Black Lives Matter community out on the West Coast come out here, um, possibly in July. And so we're looking to have like a three to five day um, intensive immersion, not just on agrarian or or ecological methods to produce food, but on popular education on building bam you know using bamboo to build structures mm-hmm. on making biofertilizers um on like you know very fundamental accounting systems you know what i'm saying so these mm-hmm. these you know holistic ways to develop oneself to be able to contribute um positively to the construction of one's community and so you know the thing is is like for for all of us we're not we're not often taught the real history and it's all of our history you know we need to know that there were people on the eastern seaboard before any of us got here, and they lived in a way that was actually very sustainable for tens of thousands of years. We can't go back to that, but we can talk to them to learn the history and see, okay, well, there's all these trees around, but they have relevance too, and we know how to, to work with them. And so, you know, there's this there's this symbiosis between between us as people and, like, space in terms of cities and also place in terms of the land and we have to keep those dynamics in communication and so you know you know hopefully mark you might uh get a text you know getting that so we could put that out or talk again about this training program absolutely because, man i'd love to do that mm-hmm. absolutely no question because the folks that are in the conversation we were very um hopeful for what this what this could represent in terms of a, a start, not a starting point because this process has been happening for hundreds of years, but yet another piece in it to make these, these deep connections amongst us as people. Yeah, I, I'd like to, as we conclude this part of our conversation today, and we'll come back to it more because there's so much you all have said that we can build on and, and also building on what Blaine just said. Um, it was interesting in the wake of the Freddie Gray piece, and it, it was death, not his piece, in the wake of Freddie Gray's death. Mm-hmm. That um, they saw Whole Foods giving money, giving food to police officers on duty, yeah. and that led to a movement. Denzel and those, and many of you, got involved with, mm-hmm. of saying, "All right, don't buy from Whole Foods, yeah. buy from black farmers," um, and this two things. So that that was an interesting, to me, juxtaposition of what that moment created mm-hmm. among young people like you, and the response to that. That was and I, that didn't get a lot of play in the press, Mm-mm. right? But we're going to give it some play now before we go. <laughs> <laughs> I was on Whole Foods' team up until that point. I, uh, you know, I am a, the thrift queen. I can spend twenty dollars <laughs> and come out with you know amazing amounts of food. So Whole Foods to me was not one of every time someone said, "Oh, Whole Foods is too expensive," or "Whole Foods is not for me." Yada yada mm-hmm. yada. You know, I'd say, "Oh no, you just got to shop the bulk foods." You know, you got to <laughs> shop this. You got to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that to me. Again, it's just one of those moments. Like Blaine started this conversation, we're experiencing the the legacy of a system that wasn't created to serve us, you know. And so Whole Foods, the pinnacle of food, you mm-hmm. know, in the United States, or, you know, where if you want to be a conscious shopper, then you go to this place, you know, and this conscious business, so to speak, is is well involved in environmental conversations. They do a lot of help with schools. They give money, you know, to all of these different things. But when it comes to really being conscious and they're not serving this demographic, so perhaps they di- didn't even occur to them that they may be looked at as, you know, as a little off. But then, again, this community, you know, the when Stop, Shop, and Save closed, you know, 
several mm-hmm. communities got hit. Park Heights was one, Sandtown, Winchester right, was another. Right, right. You know, and so this community doesn't have a grocery store, and there have been talks about adding Whole Foods throughout the city and, um, you know, in different ways. And then you have this company come in and pretty much slap you in the face saying, you know, this happened to you and you are upset about it and you're being vocal about it and now you, you know, are being shut down, you know, on a, a wholesale level and we are going to support the people who are shutting you down because you are upset about the decades of oppression in your community Mm -hmm. that we could help you solve, you know, even though I'm not really a proponent of Whole Foods in the hood, it happened in Detroit (laughs) and it's not really working that well. So, (laughs) so, you know, it's, again, it's complex, but to me... It might might work in the hood if it was called Whole Foods Half Price. Right. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, I I used to be team Whole Foods. I love their pound cake. Don't judge me. Um, But... But um, but no, that to me was a real slap in the face. And uh, Whole Foods has a whole campaign to give back to the community, and this was a community that they said just wasn't worth it. Well, any final? We have about a couple minutes left here. If you want to, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't really too surprised by the Whole Foods. I mean, like Sasha and, and Blaine been saying, this is it's not designed for you know black people in America. So for them to actually do something that was like right, you know, I would have been surprised if they actually did the right thing. <laughs> but, you know, they, it's just how it goes. And But, you know, I'm, I'm glad that the attention was brought to black farmers and, and farmers like myself and Blaine and Sasha and, and Denzel and, and all the other black farmers in, in Maryland and outside of Maryland all across the country. So, I, you know, I just take it in stride, you know, because I've been getting so much attention just from that. There was one article written by um, Black Divinity, and that thing, it just blew up online. And, like, I mean, people have been, like, trying to get in contact with me and trying to, like, purchase stuff for me. And I'm like, you know, I'm sorry. I don't really have anything right now to sell. But, (laughs) you know, I I think it's it's just been great to to promote that black ownership and supporting black, you know. I, I think that it is. And I think this is. I think that that you are right. I think in the next few years, this could be. This could explode across the country and across our communities here, mm-hmm. but also across America. Well, this has been a great discussion. Just the beginning of many we're going to have with the folks in this room and folks around people in this room. I just heard Blaine Snipstall, who is returning generation farmer on the Eastern Shore at Black Dirt Farm. Uh, Sasha Jones is with us. Uh, she manages the Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights. Uh, food Justice Consultant with the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, and Walker Marsh, founder and owner of the Flower Factory. I want to thank you all so much for uh, being here in the studio for Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> the Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our intern is Michael Dixon. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews with Clean Cuts. And send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>